Okay, man, we almost had our introduction to the text today just in worship today, didn't we? It's really fun to be the preacher and to get to prepare worship because you just, you're studying and you're like, oh, this song's on my heart, this song's on my heart, and they just kind of come out. <clears throat> um, but uh, we're in Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to look uh, specifically verses 17 through the rest of the chapter, but let's just go to verse 11. We'll read up to verse 17, and this will be recap from last Sunday. So you'll want to listen to last week's message if you weren't here. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, I just pray that as we get into the next set of scripture that you would preach to us, Lord, that you would bring the word of God to bear on our hearts and that you would just let the reality of this future event cause us to not be some strange theologians with strange websites and weird web pages and, and uh, YouTube channels as, as much as Lord, we would be those that live for holiness, those that would evangelize the lost and that have a burning in our heart for those that are perishing, God, as well as those that we would be those that are looking up, waiting for your coming. Strike that in us today as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, basically what we have here in Revelation chapter 19, this is the, the first part we just read, we're going to get into even more of it here, is the second coming of Jesus Last week, we looked at the difference between his first coming when he came in humility, born in a barn and a manger, you know, the Virgin Mary and all of that. We know it well. And what the second coming is going to look like. We also made distinction between the rapture of the church and that there's a difference between that and the event that we have now is the second coming. Okay. So listen last week. I'm not going to get into it this week. We don't have the time or the patience, to be honest with you. Okay. Uh, but listen to last week's message. So today we're talking about the second coming of Jesus. This is at the end of the tribulation period. There have just been seven years of God pouring out his wrath on this Christ-rejecting world. That seven-year period came after the rapture of the church, where uh, we believe that we were caught up to meet the Lord in the air, we're up in the clouds with him, and then we go to the throne room of heaven, and we spend those seven years in worship of the Lord. The marriage supper of the Lamb happens right before we come back with Jesus in his second coming. He comes on a white horse 
with the armies of heaven with them. That's the saints who've been born again, who've been washed with the blood of Jesus, who have their sins atoned for and declare him to be their Lord and their Savior. And also the armies in heaven are the angels who are with them. And they're coming back, and he is in the front on his white charger with sword in his mouth. This section has been called the return of the king. Something of the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf riding on a white horse across towards the battle. But in a far truer and greater sense, we have Jesus, the king of kings, returning. Or as the Beatles said, here comes the sun. Do-do-do-do, right? Here comes the son. He's coming back. In verse 17 begins a section of the chapter that tells us that King Jesus will judge all who reject him at his coming. Verses 17 and 18 show us that. In verse 17, we see there will be no escape from this judgment if you are one who has rejected him. It is tragic, sad, and heartbreaking beyond words that unbelievers, non-Christians, do not get to share with or enjoy the believer's reward that we will have. It's sad because for them there's no hope. Only horrible and terrifying destruction and judgment. So for those who have not had Lord Jesus be their savior to wash away their sins and as the New Testament says, also their Lord and that he is their master, the ruler of their lives. They have bowed their knee to him as the authority of their life. What he says goes and when he says we don't say no's, okay, we don't say no. We say yes and amen to all that you declare you are and all that you desire us to be. Peter says in the preaching on the day of Pentecost that God has made him both Lord and Christ. In the Greek, it's Christos and Kyrios, Messiah and Master, Lord and Savior. As Christians, you cannot have Jesus be one without the other. He is the Lord and the Christ. And for those who have rejected that and leaned on their own understanding, whether they look religious or not, whether they're polished or not, whether they're American or not, whether they vote Republican or not, doesn't matter if he is not your Lord, if he is not your Savior. So what is he for you today? Is he the master of your life? Or do we need to sing again the song we sang today? Majesty, Lord of all, let every throne before you fall. We kind of got our own little mini kingdoms going on that need to submit to him, that need to bow down to him. And so we see this in verse 17. Then I saw an angel. This begins this judgment period. I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Kind of an interesting thing because we'd seen the sun as the source of light being blotted out during the bull judgments, but now it's replenished with glory. Now, normally, if you were to put an object in front of the sun, what does the sun do to that object? It 
it causes a silhouette, it blots it out. But here we see an angel shining in the midst of something that's shining. And if you understand the glory of God at all, you know that when you spend time in the presence of God, you begin to shine. We see this with Moses. We see this with the transfiguration, that you shine with the Shekinah glory of God. And it seems that this angel is even shining with even greater glory in front of the sun, which is so glorious itself. And he cries out with a loud voice in the Greek, a megasphonus, or as we know it, testing, testing, you know, a megaphone. His voice is the megaphone. He's crying out with the loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, all of you nature lovers out there, get ready for this. It's a really special time in the book of Revelation. We all know what the birds got to do with Babylon, right? Just a few chapters ago. Those that uh, are in the midst of heaven, those that are in mid-heaven, these birds that are flying in the Greek high in the sky. It reminds me of Lainey. When she was a little girl, we'd go to the park, and she would uh, swing on the swing. And she was really into this swing, and she would say, push me, daddy, high to the sky. And I would, you know, I'm just, man, I'm getting it up to, it's, it's almost at that apex where she's going back around, you know, high to the sky, daddy, high to the sky. So here we have the angel high in the sky speaking to the birds who are high in the sky. And he says something so precious to these fowls of the air. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. It's just wonderful feast that's about to happen. This banquet dinner this of this megastheos, this great God, also known in the original manuscripts as the great supper of God. Now, the book of Revelation, we've seen in the weeks past that it has been called a tale of two cities. It's a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. It's a far, far better. Oh, okay, sorry, that's Charles Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities. All right. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's going to be the worst of times here. Okay. Just so you know. All right. The two cities are Babylon. All right. Or the new Jerusalem. Okay. We're going to see the new Jerusalem in just a couple of weeks. All right. But it's also known as a tale of two ladies. Okay. We have the great harlot in chapter 17, who is this religious system of Babylon that Satan and the Antichrist set up. Okay. But we also have the the beautiful bride of Christ that we looked at two weeks ago, clothed in white. Her groom has come for her and redeemed her and now has a great plan and a hope for her. But here we see in this chapter the tale of two suppers, the marriage supper of the lamb and the great supper of God that the birds get to dine on. Mm, mm. All right, delectable is really what it's going to be. All right, it's this scriptural threat in a sense of judgment that Goliath tried to give to David in 1 Samuel 17. Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. All right, but here the angel's saying literally you've rejected God and you are going to be a meal. Look in verse 18 to the birds, he says, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So verse 18 tells us that there will be no discrimination in this judgment. 
Here, sinners are called and condemned by the Lord for a bird feast, for a vulture's banquet, where they are the guest of honor. Hey, what's for dinner? You. All right, it's the classic cartoon line, right? Hey, what's cooking, bub? You are stupid. Okay, you remember that? It's like uh, Daffy Duck or something like that. And they are going to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, so military tribunes, commanding officers, commanders of thousands is what this speaks of. These birds are going to eat the flesh of mighty men, powerful, strong, intense, great men, the flesh of horses that are coming to this battle that's going to be taking place, and the flesh of those who sit on the horses, the flesh of all people. And so we, hear, we see here just this no discrimination. You might be free, you might be slave. You might be small, you might be great. You might be a slave, someone who's under restraints, someone who's a servant. You might be little, short, young, unimportant. You might be very surprisingly important. But if you reject Jesus and you're alive in this time in world history, you will be the vulture's banquet. Barnhouse says the race has walked in carnal enmity against God, living after the flesh, and now the day of his patience is at an end. And the angel of this section is essentially ringing a dinner bell, the triangle at the cookhouse, saying, come and get it. Ezekiel speaks toward this. But that it doesn't matter who you are, how wealthy, how impressive, what nation you belong to. Doesn't matter your wealth. If you've rejected the son of God, you will be slaughtered, trampled out in the wrath of God. And your flesh will be a feast for vultures. Just as our God is indiscriminate in his offer of free salvation to anyone who would believe, he's also indiscriminate for judgment to those who worship their own gods of silver and gold and flesh and experience and career. John Piper said in his sermon titled Second Coming, when the world is ready for judgment as roadkill is for the vultures, then he will come in great wrath. This will not be private, secret, or pleasant for unbelievers. He will come in the clouds of heaven and power and great glory, and the judgment will be like vultures sweeping in on the corpses of human rebellion. Moving on in verse 19 through 21, we see King Jesus will defeat all enemies who oppose him. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus will capture his enemies. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So uh, it's Calvary Chapel's perspective. It's my perspective. And just I say this in humility. I've studied different perspectives. This is just where I land in my understanding of end times. I believe this is a future event that is yet to occur. It may only be seven years away. The Lord Jesus comes back today. Okay. But it's a future event. And in this event, we have someone called the beast 
that the Bible itself helps us understand is the Antichrist. He's a world ruler who's been brought to power by Satan, but has been given his authority by God himself. God's sovereign judgment on the world is bringing the Antichrist for global judgment here, okay? And the Antichrist, as well as his army, probably at least 10 other kings with him, we know from other scriptures, these are all kings who have profited off of religious and economic Babylon, this uh, government that the Antichrist set up. And they all are getting together, and they're gathering together their armies to make war. It's this coalition, this one world government, and they're coming to fight against the one who sits on that white horse we read about earlier and against his armies, the saints, that's us. So Antichrist is coming against us, coming against the angels, coming against Jesus, and they're assembling together. There's a muster in an ungodly sort. They're coming to fight Now, Revelation 16, if you'll uh, look on the screen with me, Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, says that the sixth angel, this is during the bowl judgments, during the tribulation period, towards the end, an angel poured out this bowl of judgment into the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. So part of the uh, judgment of God is that this Euphrates River, it's like the Mississippi over there, it's a giant river, um, that it is going to be dried up so that these armies can get heading towards Israel. And John the Revelator saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon who is Satan. Big surprise. I don't know if you thought he was a good guy by him being called the dragon, but he's a bad guy. Okay, Satan. Okay, so these demons come out of his mouth. He kind of vomits them up. They're laying there in this furball mess, all right? Uh, They are the uh, out of the mouth also of the false prophet and the beast. Verse 14, they're the spirits of demons, and they're going to be performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And then Jesus comes in in an intermission and says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is he who's watching. He keeps his garment lest he walk nakedness, and they see his shame. So this is all, this is like, heart-trembling stuff, then Jesus just kind of comes into the vision and just says, guys, I'm coming soon, okay? You don't want to be a part of what's happening. All right, I'm coming like a thief. Keep your garments full of righteousness. Follow hard after me because this is going to be happening. And then kind of the curtain closes and then it gets back into it again. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Okay, so uh, not sure if the Armageddon pictures got loaded up and transferred. Sorry, I was going to have some for you guys. I might have been a little bit of a slacker last week. Uh, so we have Armageddon, okay? Armageddon comes from uh, Har-Mageddon or from the Valley of Megiddo, all right? Actually, Megiddo was a walled city in the Carmel Mountains, and it was the most strategic city in Palestine, All major traffic going through Israel, through the nation, would pass by this important military stronghold. Many battles were fought 
in this valley near the city of Megiddo, okay? Harmageddon is probably a reference to this hill of Megiddo, all right? Lots to see in the Old Testament about Armageddon, but even in more modern times, Napoleon Bonaparte is said to have stated with deep emotion after his conquest came to the Valley of Armageddon, his first sight of seeing it was, this is the ideal battleground for all of the armies of the world, Another source on Napoleon Bonaparte said that uh, nearly 200 years ago, he called this the greatest and most natural battlefield on earth. And Napoleon uh, then said, here indeed, all the armies of the earth may gather for battle. After World War II, General Douglas MacArthur stated that the next world war would certainly be Armageddon. Megiddo means place of troops or place of slaughter. We see that that is what is going to be in Revelation chapter 19. Dr. M.R. Vincent says, Megiddo was in the plain of Estralon, which has been a chosen place for encampment in every contest carried on in Palestine from the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Assyria, into the disastrous march of Napoleon Bonaparte from Egypt into Syria. Jews, Gentiles, Saracens, Christian crusaders, and anti-Christian Frenchmen, Egyptians, Persians, Druze, Turks, and Arabs, warriors of every nation that is under heaven, have pitched their tents on the plains of Estralon and have beheld the banners of their nation wet with the dew of Mount Tabor. Okay, so what's that saying is history has always shown that uh, the Valley of Armageddon or Megiddo, the Valley of Estralon, it's also called, it's also called the Jezreel Valley, that this has always been the battleground, all right? And we see in the future, it makes sense geographically that it would still be the battleground for the great battle in the day of the Lord. If you go back to Revelation 17, verse 14, we read that these armies will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So they're going to make war, but there's just no, it's no contest because okay? they're fighting the master of masters, the, the curios of curios, the Lord of Lords and the King of all the Kings, Basilion, Basilion. All right, he's he's the he's it. You guys don't go fight against him. It's bad bad decisions in your life when you're fighting against Jesus, okay? And it also says in Revelation 17 that those that are with him, all right? Those that are coming with him are called, chosen and faithful. I believe that's us the church uh in white garments, married to him as our spiritual husband. Daniel chapter 7 prophesies of uh, this event, the battle of Armageddon chapter seven, verse 21. And I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Okay. The horn is the antichrist. Okay. And begins to prevail against the Christians or uh, the tribulation saints. 
until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the most high. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom, right? Thus, he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms. This is talking about the Antichrist's kingdom. He will devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. Ten horns or ten kings, they're going to rise from their kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from all the first ones. He'll subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous, arrogant words against the Most High. This is the Antichrist. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Shall intend to change times and law. And then the saints shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years of the tribulation period. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. So the Antichrist has this height of power during the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. But he doesn't get to rule and reign just forever. I mean, the courts of heaven, the rulers of heaven say, um, you know what? No. All right. Time to shut Okay. Time to be quiet. You're, you're done, okay? And in the next chapter of the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 25, speaks of the Antichrist in a separate prophecy about, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. Okay, so here the Antichrist is trying to rise against the prince of princes. This is at the second coming at this point. But he will be broken without human means. Okay, so this is where we're at today in Revelation 19. We are at, he's gathering his army. He's gathering his battle. This is the Antichrist. He's satanic. There's demonic stuff going on. He's coming, and he's going to war against Jesus and against the saints that are with him. All right? Um, but it's, he's, it's going to come to an end, and it's not even going to be human M16s, M4s, tanks, you know, cruisers, Tomahawk missiles, bomber, you know, whatever. None of that's needed. We're going to see in just a little bit, it's going to be without human means that, that he's going to be brought to nothing. Daniel also prophesies, Daniel 11:44, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and annihilate many, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Right, So again, he's got his army coming together. He's planting his tents in the Jezreel Valley between the seas and the holy mountain. He's coming down there, but he's, it's just, we're going to just see it. Just a little, this is like a little bit of a trailer to a movie. It's going to come to an end. You know, it's a little bit of a spoiler. Sorry. Okay. Because Antichrist is just going to come to an end and no one's going to be able to help him. Joel prophesies of this time in Joel 3, 9. Proclaim among the nations, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Verse 11 says, assemble and come all you nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened. And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, that's the valley of Armageddon, for there will sit, I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. 
Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. This is familiar imagery to us studying the book of Revelation. We know that the winepress is a picture of God trampling out the wrath, uh, with wrath, uh, the nations, the peoples who have rebelled against him. Verse 14 of Joel 3 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Okay, so valley, valley of decision, valley of Jezreel, uh, valley of Jehoshaphat, valley of Estralon, valley of Armageddon. These are all synonymous, but in different historical times, it's all, we know it more modernly as the valley of Armageddon. Okay, and so the long-awaited battle of Armageddon from these prophecies that we've just read, it's going to be a bit of a disappointment for those who are expecting a good fight. You know, those of us that are ever like, yeah, and then Jesus is coming back. We're going to be with him on white horses and we're all going to have swords and just, you know, we're just going to ride down there and we're going to get to be a part of a really sweet, like, we don't do anything. We don't even, it's, we're just wearing fine linen on our horses. Okay. All right. We don't have any weapons. He's the one with the weapon. Jesus has got the weapon. He's going to come down and just without human means, boom, shalakalaka, right? Antichrist dead. Okay, and uh, it's disappointment for those that, you know, want a good fight, want to see some really good fight stuff. It's, it's going to be cool. It's just not what you expect. It's going to be over in a flash. Chuck Swindoll says, let's cut to the chase. Before anybody, before anybody on earth can utter the word Armageddon, the battle will be over. So if you fall off your horse on your way back down, like, sorry, that's it. Like, you had your whole life to prepare to ride a good steed and you ruined it at the second coming. Okay. I don't even know what happens if you fall. I mean, you just land. It hurts. Okay. So everyone here riding lessons promise. Okay. All right. Teskies, Newell's, Barney's, Papanaz. Let's get some riding lessons set up. Okay. We got one down at the McKinnon, but he's taken. Okay. Rio. Mine. Okay. It's going to be a bunch of white horses and one buckskin. Okay. You'll be able to find me. You can ride Rita. It's okay. She's a donkey. Mark. (laughs) She loves you. She's going to be thrilled. Okay. Martin Luther said in his classic hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. Okay. He said that God deals with Satan and his devices, quote, One little word shall fell him. That's it. Jesus is going to fight against Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, and all their armies with the sword of his mouth. And one little word, I hope I'm close enough to hear it, shall fell him. And it's done. Verse 20 says, the beast is captured. Did you notice how not a lot of detail? I put more detail into it today than the book of Revelation puts into it. Okay. Probably too much, if we're honest. Okay. And like all of a sudden, boom, like it's over. And the beast is captured. Like, whoa, where was the explosion? You know, the beast is captured. So we know that's the Antichrist. With him is the false prophet. By the way, the Antichrist, he tries to be Jesus and look like Jesus to get worship. And the false prophet, he tries to have like this Holy Spirit role. Okay. 
false prophet, Holy Spirit guy, he works signs and wonders in the false, in the Antichrist presence, by which he deceived those who would receive the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So, so swift and complete is the defeat of this evil army that the text doesn't even describe it. Okay? It's over before it starts. All right? And... We love this text because the beast is captured. And we love when the bad guy is captured, seized, taken into custody. And that false prophet, the deceptive ministry of the false prophet is noted. Now notice as they are cast alive into the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. That these verses do not give us a hint of annihilation. Okay, There are many people who believe in annihilation that... Wicked people, wicked the wicked ones, that they're just going to be snuffed out and not suffer for their sin for all eternity. And the scriptures do not teach this, okay? There's no hint of that in the book of Revelation. There's no hint of it in chapter 19. Their eternal destiny is one of conscious torment, and it's a eternal separation from God. These are men, though wicked men. They're still men, demon-possessed men, still individuals, separated from God, tormented for all eternity, and Revelation simply confirms the witness of Jesus who said more about the reality of hell than anyone else in the Bible. They go to directly to jail here. The beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, they do not pass go. They do not collect their $200. They're in jail. And when we're going to study the next couple weeks, we're going to see a thousand years is going to go by. And they're just as much in hell jail as they were from day one. Just the two of them for the next thousand years. And then they will be joined by all the others. These two arch conspirators, the Antichrist, the false prophet, who bolts so largely, Ironside says, in this book, are cast alive in the lake of fire, where thousands of years later they are still said to be, quote, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire, end quote. Thus, incidentally, providing that the proving that the lake of fire is not annihilation. And it's not purgatory either, for it neither annihilates nor purifies these two fallen foes of God and man after a thousand years of judgment. Reference on your own time, Matthew 13, 40 through 42. Matthew 25, 41 through 46. Mark 9, 42 through 48. Jesus speaking on hell, its extent How long, how severe. We go with his words on that. The Antichrist, the false prophet are captured and condemned. Two words that describe the future of those who say no to God's grace and salvation. Captured and condemned. Cast alive and deposited into the lake of fire, 
burning with brimstone. It speaks of a bonfire. It speaks of a place of punishment. It's called hell, burning with sulfur and with brimstone. I did a little bit of uh, searching, and I found some images of some sulfur mines, where in this image, a sulfur miner is standing inside of the crater of the Kawaijen volcano at night, holding a torch, looking toward a flow of liquid sulfur, which has caught fire and burns with an eerie blue flame. So uh, sulfur fire here. And the smell, of course, it's it's, uh, famous for being a putrid smell. We've got molten sulfur flowing here, but also the language in the text says burning brimstone. This is a really grainy picture of a man who went to Sodom and Gomorrah, where currently there's nothing but brimstone because of the judgment of God against it. And you can get the brimstone, touch a match to it, and it will light on fire. And there's a guy on YouTube that uh, went there and he just got a little bit of it and brought it home in the airplane, you know, and then he sat it in his driveway and he's just sitting like in his flip flops in his driveway and he takes a lighter to it and he lights it and you can just hear him go, oh, that's hot. And it's just a little pebble of brimstone. And so between the sulfur and the brimstone, these images that show us, uh, you know, how hot, uh, how severe As Mount says, it's a lake of burning brimstone, not only intensely hot, but malo, I don't know if I'm saying this right, malodorous, 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 I always looked at Kazo, help me out here, supposed to call you earlier to check on that, and fetid as well. Now, verse 21 takes us to where Jesus will slay his enemies. You guys doing okay? My watch says I got five minutes and 22 seconds left. In my preaching. Can you give me that? Good. Now let's stretch it to 10. And, okay. Uh, and the rest were killed. Jesus slaying his enemies here. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, we are going to take some Old Testament scripture now, and we're going to look at maybe some more detail as to what's going to happen in the second coming of Christ. You guys ready for this? Okay. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. If you're a little on the lazy side, yes, it's on the screen, but come on people. Right. Books make you smart. Zechariah 12.10. Now these have... Fulfillment in a first context, in actual historical events that were happening in um, to Israel, to Judah in these times, and yet they also are known to have secondary prophetic fulfillment in uh, the day of the Lord, in the end times, uh, when the Messiah will come and rule and reign. Okay, Zechariah twelve ten. says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication when they look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Okay, so something that we know in our study of Revelation, beginning back in about chapter 13, 
is that the Jews who are alive during this end time period, they're going to be stoked that the Antichrist has built them a temple. They don't call him the Antichrist yet. Okay. He builds them their temple. It's everything they ever wanted. Even today, go to the temple, uh, uh, to the, uh, help me out, Lindsay, the temple. You institute. Okay. Thank you. The temple Institute today is ready to build the temple. They got everything made. They just need someone to come and build the temple for them. And they got all the articles ready to go inside the temple. They're ready for it. He's going to come. The Antichrist is going to come on the scene. He's going to set up their temple. They're going to be so stoked. There's going to be seem to be some sort of peace between the Muslims and the Jews and the Palestinians and the Israelis. And it's going to be like, this is awesome. Until Antichrist gets a little on the weird side. Okay. And he sets up like this weird holographic image inside the temple and demands that he be worshiped. He's going to bring an end to all the temple sacrifice that's going on. And he's going to demand to be worshiped. And the Jews are going to go, that's a little weird. And he's going to start persecuting them, but the Lord's going to make a way for them to run into the wilderness and be protected for three and a half years. Now today's time that we're talking about today, when Jesus comes back, all of those Jews who've been hiding are going to look at him and go, Messiah's here. And then they're going to look a little closer and they're going to see something on Messiah's hands and his feet. And they're going to see the wounds that they put on him. As they said, let his blood be on our heads and on our children's head. And so here we have this time on the house of David, the Jews. They're going to look on Jesus. This is verse 10 of Zechariah 12. They looked on me whom they pierced. He's coming back in glory. And they're looking at his hands and his feet. And they are going to mourn. They are going to realize they missed the Messiah. They're going to mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And they're going to grieve for him as they grieve for their firstborn. In that day, there's going to be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, wives by themselves, families of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, family of the house of Levi by itself, the wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. I mean, you got to understand, they've been looking for the Messiah forever, and then they end up killing the Messiah And then they go thousands of years being dispersed and brought back, and they can't wait to build their temple. In fact, right now in Israel, Israel has gone to a point where they're not even looking for Messiah right now. They're looking for the temple to be their Messiah. That was my last 2017 trip. And since I've been going to Israel, they've gone from waiting for Messiah to come to, we just want temple so bad, it's going to be our Messiah. Okay? And so then Antichrist is going to come. Messiah is basically there. He gets all weird. All this stuff goes on. And then they do see Messiah. And they realized he came and we murdered him. He came as a prince of peace. He came as a lowly servant. And we slayed him. And you can imagine the sorrow of that. It, it's, it's like here. It's like I just need to be by myself for a little while. Get away from the family and just go wail and weep by yourself. Because of what's happened. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, so we'll go two chapters from here. We have a little more insight into what's going to happen on this day. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. 
and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant... But the remnants of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And this is really cool. So this is prophetically forward for the second coming. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But as evening time, it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day, it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain. From Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. So this gives us a little insight into when Jesus does speak that word with the sword of his mouth, what's going to happen, okay? Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together. Gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. And such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall the plague be. Okay, so we're just going to bring this down to a little bit of an elementary uh, principle here, okay? Um, Sometimes this thing really works amazing and sometimes not so much. So what we have here in this image is uh, what's called the... Uh, The Temple Mount in Jerusalem, okay? Towards your right, you see the big walled city of the old city of Jerusalem, okay? So these are, uh, this is the wall. This is really more of a Turkish era wall around Jerusalem. And, uh, and then we have these, this beautiful little rolling hill area. You see the dome, that little dome 
structure in the middle, uh, that's, um, that is supposed to be King David's son with the big hair who rebelled against him. Absalom's tomb. Okay, that's Absalom's tomb. Okay, so we have uh, Jerusalem up on the hill. Then we have this little valley with a little stream, and there's that tomb next to the stream. This is the Kidron Valley, okay, and the Kidron Brook or the Brook Kidron. And then as you look up to the left, there's another elevation and another hill. That's the Mount of Olives, okay? Uh, so we have here the uh, Kidron Valley. On the right is Jerusalem with its uh, big city walls. And to the left is the Mount of Olives. Here's another view, but it's facing towards the north. So it's the opposite. So on the left, you've got the city of Jerusalem. It's the old city, okay? Uh, you have the Dome of the Rock there. That's that gold or uh, that bronze dome. That's a Muslim monument, place of worship right now. Just next to that would have been where the Temple of Solomon sat. Jesus walked all over this mountain, walked all over that hill, walked all over that platform. The temple was there. You can just imagine it there in its splendor. And then you have that green little hill there going down into the Kidron Valley. And then you go up towards the right, and that rolling bigger hill there is the Mount of Olives. What do we know about the Mount of Olives? Jesus would go there. He gave the Olivet Discourse where he talked about all this end time stuff. Uh, the Olivet uh, Mount of Olives is where Jesus ascended up into heaven. And remember the angels said, what are you doing looking here? He's going to come back in the same manner. Okay. Something else we know about the Mount of Olives, it's, it's uh, kind of on the left side of that hill is the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's where Jesus wet, uh, prayed and wept sweat, uh, sweat drops of blood. It's where he was arrested, and then he was taken back across the little valley, and then he was crucified up on the Temple Mount of Mount Moriah there. Um, but just as the angel said, what are you doing staring up at Jesus as he ascends up from the Mount of Olives? They said, because he's going to come just back, just like this. And we just read in Zechariah chapter 14 that when he comes back, the return of the king, here comes the son, do-do-do-do, all right? The second coming of Jesus, he's going to come back and set his feet on that mountain there on your left, the Mount of Olives, all right? From the walled city of Jerusalem, we're looking across that green valley of the Kidron Valley, and we're looking at the Mount of Olives right now. Okay, so you can almost go back in time, rewind the footage, and see Jesus going up, okay, ascending. And if you fast forward to the future, he's coming back, okay, and he's going to set those legs of his on the Mount of Olives. This is another view from the walled city over across that valley, uh, now, here we have a map of Israel, okay? Kind of in the middle, there's a teeny tiny red dot. I had to zoom in and out and try to get it right for you guys. That is the Mount of Olives, okay? So on the left, you have the Mediterranean Sea, also known as the Great Sea. It's the sea that Daniel saw the visions of the beast coming out of the sea, okay? That's the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, towards the right, we have the Dead Sea, okay? And since the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Dead Sea has been a useless sea. It's a salt sea, called the Salt Sea. It's 30 times saltier than the ocean. It's so salty that when you go there and you swim in it, been there, done that, many of you have too, uh, you, you can't sink because it's too salty. So people go with their newspapers and their magazines, and they kind of float around. You don't want to shave the day before because ouch, 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 okay? 
And you don't want to get it in your eyes because it'll dissolve inside your sockets like a Zechariah 14 prophecy, okay? But it's crazy. You're just floating. You can't make yourself sink, all right? And then you get the mud, and it's very therapeutic, and you rub it all over you, and you're like, look okay. okay, whole other story. But what do we see here in this prophecy is that when Jesus comes, boom, that red dot, he is going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives, see the Temple Mount, you see uh, right now the Dome of the Rock, you see the Valley, you see the Mount of Olives. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. And we just read it in Zechariah that there's going to be a great valley open up. I mean, he's just going to set his feet down with great force, okay? This is an actual footage of uh, that (laughs) video I was telling you about, okay? He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split in two, okay? And it's going to cause a valley uh, to split from the great Mediterranean Sea, and there's going to be a valley that goes all the way through Jerusalem and all the way over to the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And the prophecy is that when Jesus comes back, that Salt Sea will be fresh water again. And over thousands of years, it is going to be a, a paradise once again, a luscious valley where agriculture can um, prosper uh, as well. Uh, It's interesting that uh, Sherry Tan Hotel Group once looked at the Mount of Olives as a site to build a hotel. They had to do an environmental impact study before they did, and they found that there was a major fault line going right through the Mount of Olives and that they would not be able to build there. If a quake did occur, they said it would split from east to west and would be about this magnitude that we're talking about today. And so as we have the worship team come back up, which is also, give me a minute, okay? No, but also uh, David and, and Justin, come on up. The Bible teacher John Phillips says it well. Suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There will be just a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul and instantly they fled. Now he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous loudmouth beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle working windbag from the pit is punctured and still. Another word, and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all, they fall, and the vultures descend and cover the scene. And so here we have two choices for people that the last, in the last days, two choices that they will have. They'll either be the main guests, at the marriage supper of the lamb, or they'll be the main dish. Would you rather eat dinner or be eaten as the dinner? Must be added that one cannot come to the marriage supper of the lamb without an invitation and without a reservation. Will you guys pray with me today?